Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Making the Most of Your Salvation, with a message entitled, Knowing Your Adoption. So turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Just like smartphones and computer software programs and countless apps and the technology that's now built into so many cars, most people aren't getting half of the benefits they should out of the technology they possess. There are marvels at their fingertips if only they accessed it. Well, the same is true of our salvation. Many believers are completely unaware of what they already have and what advantages are already theirs. They don't access them because they don't know about them. So I'm doing a series called Getting the Most Out of Our Salvation. And I've talked about election, a voting booth, and I've talked about imputation, which is an accountant's ledger. I've talked about regeneration, which is a hospital surgical center, and the receiving of a new heart. And I've talked about a law court, words of God, not guilty, through Christ our Lord. And Today, I want to move into the family living room, or probably more appropriately, maybe the family castle. I mean, the benefit we're speaking of today is called adoption. Once you become a Christian, you've been adopted into the best family anyone could have. How important is this benefit? Is this just another one in a long line of apps that I might not need and I don't really need to pay attention? Well, listen up. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. That may lift a few eyebrows that justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of the future, is the primary blessing and fundamental blessing of the gospel. That's not in question. But that's not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel. I think Packer's right. I mean, the more I think about it, the more outrageous and over-the-top this benefit seems to me. It seems hard to believe. It seems to me that God has given us far more than what was necessary. I mean, this benefit in our salvation seems extravagant beyond belief. And if we're not in the Bible, we might call it excessive. We might question a person's sanity for believing that they have received adoption. Let me explain. Adoption does not follow by logical necessity. God could have given us a new heart and put new desires in us to love him. He could have forgiven our sins and made us acceptable in his presence. You know, in that condition, how joyful it would have been to be in his army, one of his chosen troops, ready to go to battle for our king. How joyful to be one of his servants who were given the privilege of serving before the throne. David said it was better to be one day in God's courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to live in the palaces of the wicked. Just to be invited before the throne room and welcomed there, that's already more than I can imagine. And then to experience the eternal joy of heaven, well, that's more than good enough. It's it's everything I could have wanted. But it would seem that our God was not satisfied with that. Listen, the king has not only transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, he has adopted us into his family, and he's given us the legal status of royalty. We are more than his grateful subjects. No, he's not satisfied with that. He has made us his sons and daughters. Here's a status that not even the angels participate in. Today, we're going to try to understand this. 
What is adoption? You know, in human terms, adoption is an ancient practice. There's a provision made for it in the Code of Hammurabi. It was written in the 18th century BC. You know, some have wondered why that practice is not spoken of in the Law of Moses. Well, actually, the answer is quite simple. Israel as a nation is set up in terms of family. So there are 12 tribes, and each tribe consisted of a number of clans, and all those clans were made up of extended families. And after all those extended families, well, they're made up of nuclear families. So if your father died, your mother was married to his brother in what was called a Leverite marriage, in which all the privileges of family were now yours by law. No one ever existed outside of family. The family took in family according to law. You cared for your kin. But the idea of taking in a foreigner or a stranger, well, that's virtually non-existent in the Old Testament. So here's our problem. You know, when we think of adoption, we tend to think of it as a baby being adopted by a mom and dad. They know nothing of this child, and they're not related to them. It, it happens through an agency, and sometimes the mom and dad can have children of their own, and sometimes they simply want to show compassion for someone else. I mean, the trouble with that image is that image didn't exist in Israel, and it was almost unheard of in the wider Roman world. See, the kind of adoption we think of when we think of the word, well, it actually never happened at the time when the Bible was being written. Actually, what happened in the Roman world was different than what we would imagine. Adoption was almost always restricted to a wealthy ruling class. And adoption is a different kind of adoption. It happened among the wealthy, as I've said, and the powerful when they needed a male heir. Roman wealthy families typically restricted their family size to no more than three children, and only the oldest son would be the heir of power and wealth. But with high mortality rates, adoption often became the only way in which you could take care of the future of your household. So a man of standing would look for a healthy young man with proven abilities. An arrangement would have to be made, and the young man's father and the natural father would give up all rights to his son. And furthermore, any debts and obligations or liabilities were canceled by the adopting father, and then the young man would become heir to the new father's fortune. He would then cut off all relations with his natural father, and he'd enter into a new household of wealth, power, and privilege. Well, an example of that would be Augustus Caesar. He was adopted by his great uncle, Julius Caesar, and upon Julius's death, he inherited the entire estate. And because of Julius Caesar's standing, Augustus was considered a key contender for the throne. And then when Augustus became emperor, he himself adopted another young man, Tiberius, who became emperor after him. So adoption was both family and royalty all rolled up into one. And furthermore, the adopted son took the name of the new family, and that adoption could not be reversed. So adoption in the Bible is the language of the rich who wanted to raise up an heir. It's the language of kings who invited someone chosen by them to inherit their power and status, privilege and wealth and kingdom. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 5. He says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, with that in mind, this image of a king adopting an heir for the purpose of ruling, let's go now to our text. I'm reading here 1 John 3, 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, before I dive into the specifics of what adoption actually means for us as believers, please notice how John begins. So our English Bible says, see what? You know, in a way, that's how the Greek reads. John calls attention to something wonderful. Just look, he says, there's something I want to bring your attention to. Now, he could have said, just look at the love the Father has given us, that we should be saved and forgiven and regenerated and invited into heaven. That in itself, as I've said, would be amazing. But John's attention is focused on something else. Make sure you don't miss this thing, he says. Look at the love the Father has given. It's so lavish. It's so abundant. It's so over the top. It's so outrageously beyond what we might have expected that we should be called the sons of God. That's the language of adoption. A great king is making us his heir. Just look at that, he says. We've been called the sons of God. Now, let's put it plainly. What privilege is ours in adoption? Well, first, adoption affects our relationship with God. God has now become our father. Now, I know that should be obvious, but think of the implications of that. Start with a matter of prayer. Wouldn't it be enough to come before God and address him as the great creator and as the king, the altogether glorious one, the all-knowing one, the God of might, the God of power, the God of revelation, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, all these would be wonderful ways of addressing God, and they do inspire us to worship. But, says John, that's not enough. John says, just look. It wasn't enough for God. God made us his sons and daughters. That means that God has invited us to call him Father. And even that's not enough. Look at Romans 8, 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Back to the Bible, Canada has just released a new book written by Dr. John Newfeld entitled, Making the Most of Your Salvation. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The moment Christ died for our sins, we've been pronounced not guilty in God's law court. When you understand the depth of your salvation and the powerful benefits available to you within it, Not only will you be transformed, but your joy and confidence will be apparent to all. And if we could use anything these days, it's the joy of our salvation. While making the most of your salvation will teach you how to access the blessings that God has already put in place through the glory of your salvation. Order your copy online today as our free gift during the month of February. Visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. There's so much in the teaching of Paul that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, and we now cry out, Abba. You know, we can't take all the time that's necessary to unpack all that, but just for now, might I ask you to concentrate on the prompting and urging and lead of the Holy Spirit who causes us in our prayers to cry out, Abba. Not just Father, but Abba, Father. 
You know, when I was a boy growing up, I was in a German home, and there was something to the word Papa. I never called my dad, you know, oh, great provider for the needs of our household, although it is what he was. I had never forgotten his provisions for me when I was vulnerable. But I never called him that. And when I still think of him today, I don't think of him in that title. I think of him as my papa. I wasn't just a beneficiary of his grace and mercy. I was his son. There was an intimacy not shared with outsiders. It was a familiarity, an assurance that I was more than welcome. I belonged. My rightful place was in that home with him. So what practically happens when God is our father or our daddy? Well, let me suggest at least three things. First, our God disciplines us. According to Hebrews 12, verse 7, it is for discipline that we have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom the father does not discipline. In other words, God sends hardships on his children to correct their behavior and to direct them in pathways that are good. But why would discipline be a privilege? See, I remember when I was about 12, I think, my brother and I had decided that we would buy some cigarettes and we'd smoke them. Well, we'd hardly begun the first one when our mom caught us, and she quickly informed us that when Dad got home, he would decide our fate. I remember Dad coming home. My brother and I were directed to stay in the garage and wait for our father. In the meantime, Mom and Dad met in the kitchen, and Mom described to our father what we had done. See, she didn't think it was necessary for us to give our side of the story. Her side of it would do just fine, she thought, and oh, horrors, Dad actually agreed with her. Well, I I don't remember telling my brother in the garage that day, aren't you glad that we have a father who loves us enough to correct our behavior? I mean, that thought never entered into my mind on that day. And to the most part, all I could think about was what was going to happen next. And the waiting went on and on. And now that I think of it, I think dad was probably having a cup of coffee and sampling some of mom's baking and letting us experience the dread of that moment. You know, I began to have an appreciation of what eternity felt like. At the time, I, I didn't know Hebrews 12:11, which says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. You know, but if that passage had been read to me at the time, say, for instance, you know, my brother would have said in the garage while we were waiting, say, John, I was reading Hebrews 12:11 in my devotions this morning, and I was just thinking of how relevant the Bible is to our everyday life and experience. You know, if, if he had said that, you know, I think I would have said to him, are you out of your mind? We're going through a horrible experience. I'm not delighting in this. How can good come from a disciplining father? Well, let me read to you from Hebrews 12:11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, in other words, this father of ours who is king and lord is training us as sons and daughters to be heirs. He's not raising up kids who are bums, but children who know how royalty acts. He wouldn't do that with a servant, but he would do that for his heirs. The amount of time he puts into us is the time a good father would put into a son whom he's training to rule. Well, there are others, perhaps more pleasant examples of the benefits of having God as the father. According to Hebrews 1.14, he dispatches his angels to protect us. Like any great king, he has a great army that he sets out to make sure that no evil befall his children. There's a great heavenly host that guards the children of the king at every moment. Now, there's more. According to Matthew 7, 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Yeah, it's true. Our heavenly Father pours out gifts and pleasant things on his children. He loves to bless us just like any earthly father would. Did you know our entire Christian life has to be understood in this manner? We have a father who just happens to rule the universe. We aren't a part of his natural family. Indeed, he is only one begotten son who inherits all things. I'll come back to that. But he has adopted us, and he's given us the full privileges of sons and daughters. He invites us into a daddy relationship. He protects, he loves, he nurtures, he disciplines, he trains us. But in the end, he invites us to sit beside him and pour out our souls to him. We are the apple of his eye. We're the subject of his greatest affections. Look again at 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, here we find that adoption not only affects our relationship with God, but second, adoption affects our relationship with the world. Family implies belonging and loyalty. What I mean here is just like ancient adoptions, the family I used to be a part of is no longer my place of belonging. I have a new family. I have a new loyalty. I have an allegiance only to him. There's more. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And how do they treat the king? Well, that's how they're going to treat the heir. We, like Christ, identify with him even when it gets tough. It's what family does. And here's the third truth in adoption. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Adoption affects our relation with the future. We're given a family inheritance. Hey, do you know what God will say to his children on the first day when we stand before him in heaven? Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom. You know, if I inherit a house, I own it. If I inherit a business, I own it. Do I now own the kingdom? Let me see if I can answer that. And might I be so bold, for those of you who think this might not be possible, listen to Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Fellow heirs with Christ. What has Christ inherited from his Father? According to Hebrews 1, 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. All things. What does that include? Well, first, it includes all the promises of God. According to Hebrews 6, verse 12, we inherit the promises. Also, at the very least, it includes the universe. According to Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? All things. Everything God has made, which is created for his pleasure, is given to us. Every far-reaching star and planet is given to the sons and daughters of God. You know, I was thinking of how audaciously I could put this. Look at it this way. Everything that belongs to Christ, with the exception of his deity, also belongs to you. He, Christ, is God's only begotten son, but you who believe are God's adopted sons and daughters. 
According to Hebrews 2.11, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. Let me say it again. All that belongs to Christ, with the exception of his deity, for Christ is both our God and our brother, but all that belongs to Christ, with the exception of his deity, now also belongs to you. It's outrageous. How can a sinner, and for most of us, Gentile sinners to boot, inherit this? It's a scandal. It's an outrageous, extravagant, excessive thing. And yet, here it is. We have been made into the sons and daughters of God. Might I put it this way to all the prosperity preachers who are out there, who are telling you that you can inherit houses and boats and planes in this world at this time? How lacking of any real value are you offering to your people? How much is this simply a matter of ashes? On the other hand, Christ offers us the universe in the world to come. That's why in verses 3 of 1 John 3, we are told to purify ourselves in this way. Indeed, adoption and the very thought of adoption should purify us from every lesser desire. John, thanks so much for your teaching today. Uh, let me ask you this question. Is it possible that somehow we've missed the significance of the teaching of adoption? Yeah, we have definitely missed the significance. Um, you know, it, it should shock us when we read the language about adoption. Uh, you know, I, I have heard people criticizing this, you know, the idea that, you know, your, your religion only is there because you think it's going to make you feel significant in some fashion. Well, here's the thing. I mean, what Christ has done for us by adopting us, or you know, what God has done by adopting us into his family, I mean, it's the most significant thing that can ever be said about anyone. I mean, to be saved is one thing, but to be adopted into the family of God and being given the rights of an heir with Christ Jesus, I mean, we need to give some time to let that just wash over us. Um, you know, perhaps, you know, we need to do more Bible studies on the matter of adoption. And, you know, perhaps we need more Bible studies on the matter of what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, it's not about playing golf forever on a golf course somewhere. It's ruling and reigning with Christ and fully understanding the privileges that God has attended to his children. I just think that we should all marvel and sometimes go to God and say, I don't know how to thank you enough. This is more than I had ever expected. Thanks, John. That's helpful. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Making the Most of Your Salvation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every day we partner with radio stations across the country, like the one you're listening to right now, to air the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. We want to thank the faithfulness of our radio partners and remind you to thank them as well. We also want to thank our listeners from across Canada who support this ministry with your encouragement and financial contributions. Your thoughtfulness ensures Bible teaching is made available in your community and across Canada as Back to the Bible Canada remains steadfastly committed to teaching the life-changing truths of the Bible. To our radio partners and listeners alike, thank you. This ministry of Bible teaching on radio could not be accomplished without you. 
To learn more about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada and all the resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.